I'd uh, like to ask you now to turn to the first uh, book in the Bible, the first page in the Bible, as a matter of fact, the book of Genesis, and we're going to begin to talk about God's plan to save us from the very beginning. Genesis 1. Uh, I'd like to make a couple of introductory comments about uh, the purpose of Scripture in general and uh, the book of Genesis in particular, because it will help us, I think, in thinking through some of the issues that we're going to run across in this book. There are an awful lot of unresolved questions about the book of Genesis, and my purpose is not to try to solve all of those problems, because the purpose of Scripture is not to teach us about uh, history or astronomy or geology or botany, although where it touches those issues, we can expect it to be accurate. The, uh, the scriptures leave a lot of questions unanswered because the purpose of the Bible is, as Paul puts it, to make us wise unto salvation. That's, uh, that's all the Bible is supposed to do. Uh, or put another way, Paul says that the goal of his teaching is to make us more loving people, easier to, to be around, more, uh, more loving and, and gracious, more like the Lord Jesus. And uh, that ought to always be in the back of our mind when we approach any passage of Scripture. That's the purpose of it. Now, we can, as I say, we can expect the book of Genesis to be accurate where it touches matters of science, but it's not a, a science textbook. And I can't tell you how long these, uh, these days are, whether they're 24-hour days or not. I can't tell you when creation occurred. I can tell you when it did not occur. It was not October the 26th, 4004 B.C., but uh, I can't tell you the precise date because Scripture doesn't tell us. And therefore, we uh, need to be careful about forming hard and fast conclusions where Scripture is uh, ambiguous. Uh, the term agnosticism bothers some people because uh, it does. A person who is agnostic is someone who says he can't know anything about anything. And that's not a proper. Uh, position for a Christian to take because we do have a revelation from God. But there is a kind of healthy agnosticism that we can have about certain things in Scripture. The word agnostic just means not knowing. And there are a lot of things we don't know. Paul says that. We know in part. And therefore, we ought to be uh, uneasy about people who, who know everything. We simply don't. There are a lot of unanswered questions. But uh, the real issues of life... The things that have to do with our salvation and how to live as God's people, the, the Scriptures speak to those issues, and they're very clear. And these are the things that we, we want to learn from the book of Genesis. Now, as I said last week, Genesis 1 and 2 are parallel accounts. They're not contradictory. They complement one another. The purpose of both is to teach us how important man is in God's sight. We are we're very precious to God. He loves us. We are His most important product. And Genesis 1 teaches us that chronologically because man is the last of God's uh, creation. Chapter 2 teaches us the same fact logically because it tells us about a garden that God made for man and he placed man in the midst of the garden and all of it's for man's sake. So both chapters teach us the same thing. They just teach, us, teach it in a different way. Now, chapter 1 uh, can be divided into two units of thought. The first two verses are a prologue to the creation story. And then beginning with verse 3 and continuing through chapter 2, verse 4, we have the account of creation. 
Here's another instance where the chapter division is in the wrong place. The account actually runs into the um, second chapter, a few verses. Uh, you'll see that it begins with verse 1 with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it concludes in verse 4, This is the account of the heavens and, and the earth when they were created. So those two expressions bracket the first creation account. Now let's look at the prologue to the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The first verse I take to be a summary statement of, of creation. The second verse is a description of, of the conditions that made necessary that creation. So we have a summary statement, and then the conditions that made that creation uh, necessary. The point of the first verse is that God created everything. The Hebrews didn't have any word for the universe. They expressed uh, that idea in terms of opposites, the heavens and the earth. It's the sort of thing that we do when we describe a group and we say the rich and the poor were there. We don't mean that, uh, that only the rich and only the poor were there. We mean that people of all economic uh, uh, conditions were there. Now, that's what, that's what Moses is doing when he says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The point is, God created the universe. He created everything. And it's God who does it. That's the important point that Moses makes. Thirty-five times or more in this chapter, he tells us that it was God who created everything. Now, the word that's translated create here doesn't necessarily mean create out of nothing. It isn't always used that way in the Old Testament. In fact, in verse 27 of this chapter, we have an instance where it's used to refer to something that's created out of something else. And we're told that God created man and woman, and we know that the woman was created from the man. So the word doesn't always mean create out of nothing. What it does mean is to create something new, create something that's never existed before. It's very much like our word creative. If a, if a person is creative, he does something that no one else has done. He's innovative. He's fresh. He's new. And that's the sort of Lord that we have. God is always doing fresh and exciting and innovative and creative things. There's nothing boring about God. If, you, if you're bored with the things of God, then you simply don't understand the character of God. He's always different. The only thing predictable about God is that he's totally unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do next. Now, we're not free to tamper with what God has already said. We can't be creative about what's already revealed. You know, there's no creative ways to murder or bear false witness. Those things are fixed. But where Scripture has not sp spoken precisely, we can be creative because we're related to a God who's always fresh, who's always new. He's always refreshing in what, what he does. And the point of this story is that God created something brand new for man. As you read through the account a number of times, it says uh, God uh, speaks and the thing occurs, and then he see, it says that he saw it and it was good. Now, the word good in Hebrew does service for a lot of words. It actually means to be beautiful. When Moses was born, he was described as a child who was good. Now, it doesn't mean he, he slept all night. It just means that he was a beautiful child. And uh, this, is, this needs to be what Moses is saying. God speaks, and something comes into being, and God says, Oh, that's beautiful. 
Man will like that. See, it's all for men. Now, that's what we're told in, in the first verse. In the beginning, God created. He made something new. He made everything new. Now, this is said in contrast to what everybody else in this time was saying. I pointed out before that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are all set against the background of the land of Canaan. Moses is up on the plains of Moab, and they're getting ready to go into the land, and uh, he's preparing them for what they're going to find. And when they get there, they're going to discover that the Canaanites have their own set of uh, stories describing origins, how the gods came into being, and how the world came into being. And there's one characteristic of all of these stories. The book of Genesis, its creation story, is, is unique. There's absolutely nothing like it. Because all of these stories describe creation first in terms of some kind of cosmic soup, some kind of, of mass, primal uh, realm that existed before the gods. And the gods are all born out of this realm. They're not sovereign over it. They don't control it. They themselves are the product of chaos. But what Moses tells us, tells first his own, the people of his time, and then us, is that God is sovereign over all of, creature, uh, all of creation. He's not controlled by anything or anyone. He rules. He's sovereign. Now, that's the point of verse 1. Then in, chapter, in verse 2, we have the, uh, an account of the conditions that made creation necessary. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The earth is described first as formless and empty, or uh, as the King James uh, translation put it, without form and void. That's a, uh, it's two words in Hebrew that sound very much like our words higgly-piggly, or helter-skelter, or hodgepodge. The words are tohu vabohu. It's a kind of a nice sound to it, doesn't it? Tohu vabohu. It, they mean everything was a mess. Uh, we have a basement in our house, and that's where our kids play, and Josh strings his uh, Lego from one side of the basement to the other, and I've lost track of the times that Carolyn walked down the stairs and said, Josh, what a mess. Clean it up, will you please? And that's, that's somewhat what the words tohu vabohu mean, without form and void. It was just a mess. It was chaotic. It was ruin, ruinous, uh, ruined. It was wasted. Uh, it was... It, it, there need to be some, and there needed to be some order, and structure, and meaning, and purpose put back into the world. It was without form; it had no shape, and it was empty. It wasn't populated. Furthermore, we're told that it was dark, and uh, that uh, in itself would be enough to frighten ancient men, because darkness was something to be feared. That's when uh, that's when burglars and bad people were out, and when it got dark, you ran into the into the town and you locked the, the gates and you were somewhat secure there. You didn't go abroad in the dark because that's when the, the creepy crawly things are out, the things that mutter and peep in the darkness. And uh, it's frightening to be out there in the dark. That's why, by the way, in Revelation 21, 1, we're told that in God's new city, in the new heavens and the new earth, they don't ever close the gates of the city because there's no night there. That's a symbol, you see, that ancient man would understand. Now, we just turn on a light and it's no big deal. But for ancient man, darkness was a very frightening thing. And just a picture that's evoked here would be, a one, be one that would, that would uh, arouse in him a feeling of, of terror. Uh, it was dark. The world was dark and chaotic. And it was watery. It was a mass of water. The, the entire globe was enveloped by what he calls the deep here. 
and the Spirit of God was brooding over the face of the deep. And again, ancient man was afraid of the sea. He didn't venture out into the high seas. And again, we're told in Revelation 21, 25 that, there, that in God's uh, universe, when he recreates everything, there's no sea because that was a frightening thing to ancient man. So the picture that's evoked here in, in verse 2 is, is, is something that would, that would frighten. Uh, it, it's frightening to us, but much, so, so, uh, much more so to the man of, of this time. And then it's in this setting that God begins to create. He wants to set right the conditions that have, that, uh, that have created chaos. And what follows in verses 3 on to the end of the section is God's creative efforts which set right the conditions that we have in chapter 2. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was beautiful. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. God speaks, and light comes into being. And the darkness is dispelled. So now he's, uh, he's resolved the first problem, that of darkness. In place of darkness, there's light. And then he makes a division between the light and the darkness. Now, Moses doesn't try to explain what we know today about the division between light and darkness. We know that it's caused by the rotation of the earth and the motion of, of the planets around the sun and so forth, but, but uh, that would have no meaning to ancient man. And so Moses explains in very simple terms that God did it. God made a separation between the, the night and the day so that when the sun rose in the morning, the man reading this account would say, God did that. And when the sun goes down in the evening and it begins to get dark, God is in control even of the darkness. That's the point. Now, the Canaanites had a story that's related to uh, this, this action on the first day. It's their description of how light and darkness came into being. And it describes how first El, who was their high god, went out on, along the coast. And first he, he roasted a, or he cooked a lamb in its mother's milk. Now, as you know, that was prohibited in the law. And uh, for a long time, no one knew why, but they know now that, that it's because it was a part of an ancient fertility cult. That was one of the actions that they took in order to guarantee fertility in the land. And it was prohibited to Israelites. But that's the first action that El took. He, he cooked a, a lamb in its mother's milk. And then he proceeded on down the, the seashore, and he found two young human women whom he assaulted, and out of that assault, these women gave birth to two gods, Shakur and Shalom, dawn and dusk. And that's how light and darkness came into being in Canaanite thought. But Moses says, no, 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 no. It was through the creative action of God. God is the one who's responsible for light and uh, for the day. And then in verse 6, the second day, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. It appears that the earth was uh, enveloped in water, and uh, over the water there was uh, a mist, cloud formations right down on the deck. So the first thing God did was to make the sky, chase the clouds away, 
so that now there's a separation between the waters under the firmament or under the sky and the waters up in the sky up here. So now he's beginning to solve the problem of lack of form. On the first day, he dispels darkness, but the earth is still formless, so he makes a division so that there's some form to the earth. But you'll notice in day two, he doesn't say it's good because it wasn't, he wasn't finished. On day three, God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the wa and, and the gathered water, waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So the next thing that he does is to create the continents, the land masses, by drawing them up out of the water. So now you have a, a planet that looks very much as it looks today, I would assume. Two-thirds of, uh, of the world is water, and in the, out of the waters are uh, these land masses, and that's what God created. So now you have a sky. There's some form to the waters. Water up here, the clouds, water under the sky, and then land masses emerging out of the water. Now, the Canaanites had their own version of creation also, the creation of the land masses. and In their case, it was Baal who... Uh, engaged in mortal conflict with Yom, which is the Hebrew word, also the Canaanite word for sea, and by means of a club drove him away so that there was dry ground. And Moses says, no, no, God didn't use a, a club. It wasn't Baal who did that. It was God who merely spoke and prepared the dry ground, chased away the sea, the thing that they dreaded. So now the earth has some form to it. And then we're told further on the third day that God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So now you see he's preparing the land to populate it. And so he causes the land to produce first uh, the grasses and then the trees with seed in them so that uh, the process of reproduction is a fixed thing. Fertility will continue. It all comes from the hand of God. Now, the, the Canaanites uh, worship Baal, who was the god who brought fertility. Their whole system of worship was a fertility cult. They believed that in the... Uh, in the spring, long about April, Baal died. And he went down under the earth. And that's why the rain ceased. All over the ancient Near East, it stops raining generally in April and May. And there's a drought that extends on into September or October. And their explanation for that was that Baal went down into the earth and he died. And then in October, he was raised again. And fertility then... Uh, uh, that was the result. It began to rain and their crops began to grow again and the grass would grow and they could feed their, their animals. It all depended upon Baal. And their worship was based on, on drama in which they depicted Baal's death and his resurrection. And they felt that by doing these things, they ensured Baal's resurrection and thus the land would be fertile. But Moses says, no, no. It's God who brings fertility. He's the one that produces the grass and, and the trees that will provide for you and, and for your animals. And so now the earth is prepared for man. The darkness has been dispelled. The earth has form, but it's still empty. And so on the fifth day, verse 20, God said, Let the water teem with the living creatures 
and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Now you'll notice there's a parallelism between these days, and that's why I, uh, I uh, it's set up on the sheet that you have in your bulletin that way. Because on the first day, he creates the light, and the second day, he creates the light bearers. On the... Um, on the second day, he creates the expanse, the sky, and separates the waters from the waters. And on the fifth day, he creates the, the birds that fly in that expanse and the fish that, uh, that live in the sea. And then, as we'll see, on the, on the sixth day, he creates the animals that inhabit the dry ground that he created on the third day. I think I skipped over the creation of the sun and moon and stars. Let's go back to verse 14. I'm getting ahead of the Lord here. In his, I knew something was missing. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The first, of course, the sun. The greater light to, gruel the day, to, to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So light precedes the sun and moon and stars, and it, and it outlasts it, as you well know. The book of Revelation says there's no need in God's uh, eternal state for the sun and moon and stars because God himself is the light. The sun and the moon and the stars are merely light bearers, and that's the meaning of the term. There are places where God gathered the light. And the point of this, of this statement about God's creation is that these, these are not objects to be worshipped. They're under God's control. They're not gods at all. The Canaanites worship the sun and the moon and the stars. And uh, people today govern their lives by the stars by astronomy. They feel that their destinies are fixed by the stars. They're controlled by them. Moses says no. No, they're servants. They're there to mark uh, days and years, and they help you organize your calendar, and they give you... Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're there for that purpose, but they're not gods. They're merely objects that God created. And then, on the fifth day, God creates the living creatures in the waters and the birds that fly above the sky or fly in the sky. And then on the sixth day in verse 24, God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So he creates the, the warm-blooded animals and the reptiles that inhabit the dry ground that he's created on, on the third day. So now the earth is, is being populated. It's beginning to be filled. And then finally, in verse 26, on that sixth day, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, 
over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, man is created on the sixth day along with the other animals, which uh, explains why he resembles the animals anatomically. We have the same sort of muscle structure and, and bone structure. Some people look more like animals than others, but we all resemble animals in, in some sense. And we can be classified. Uh, scientists, taxonomists classify man with animals. And that's legitimate up to a point. But man is more than animal. And uh, a man, the man without, without God's word simply doesn't understand that. That's why secular psychologists are so wide of the mark. Unless they believe God's revelation about man. They simply cannot give man good counsel because they try to explain him merely as an animal. But he's far more than an animal. He is that. But he's one created in the image of God. We're told in verse 26 that God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. Now that, that verse, verse 26, has probably occasioned more theological debate than any other verse in the Bible. What in, in the world does Moses mean when he says we're made in the image of God? And as you know, our Mormon neighbors, our LDS neighbors, uh, uh, explain this verse in terms of the of, of th that God has a body very much like man they reason backward from man if man is in the image of God and he has a body then God must have a body but they seriously misunderstand this passage because that's not Moses' point at all if you read it carefully it states that man is made in the image of God, in his likeness. It doesn't say in the image and the likeness of God. It's in our image according to our likeness. The second word explains the first. The first word image is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to statues and idols and things like that. And you might reason from the use of that term that, uh, that Moses is saying that man is exactly like God and therefore God would have a body like man. But the second term explains the first, according to his likeness. In other words, somewhat like God. He's not saying that man is, or God is precisely like man. He's saying that man is somewhat like God. And he was perhaps finding it difficult to find the precise term to express this concept because a, a term doesn't exist in Hebrew that, that is exact enough. He's saying man is something like God. That's all he's trying to say. Uh, we often will say this about our children. He's just like his father. Well, we don't mean that he looks precisely like his father in his six foot one or whatever. We just mean that he, in his behavior, some characteristic in, uh, that he displays makes him very much like his father. That's all Moses is trying to say. We're very much like God. 
Well, in what sense are we like God? Well, he tells us in the passage. Theologians uh, have, have reasoned from this passage that we're much like God because we can communicate, because we can choose, because we have a moral nature as God uh, does. But uh, Moses tells us in the passage what he has in mind. We are like God in that we have dominion. God is sovereign over his environment. He's not subject to anything or anyone. And what Moses wants the man of his time to know is that he, too, is not subject to anything in his environment. He can rule. That's man's destiny. I believe that, that Jesus, in his humanity, acted as Adam must have acted before the fall. He had total control. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus stilled the waves. And uh, normally we explain his actions uh, by his deity. He did so because he was God, but he clearly tells us that he laid aside the independent use of his deity. He never acted as God. He always acted as man dependent upon God. Paul calls him the second Adam, the last man, the counterpart of the first man, you see. And I, this is just speculation, but it may well be that Jesus had the same sort of control over his environment that God intended for Adam. Man lost much of that control as a result of the fall, but not all of it, because the Scripture goes on to tell, uh, tell us in, in a number of places that we're still in the image of God. Even un unbelieving man is in the image of God, according to James 3 and other passages. So man retains that image, which indicates that God expects us to exercise control over our environment. Not the total control that Adam had. We can't control the elements. But uh, control over our immediate environment and the sort of pressures that, that we all experience. And that's what Paul tells us. Man was intended to reign and to rule. As Paul puts it in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, all things, are not all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be controlled or mastered by anything. That's God's intention for us. To never be mastered by anything in our environment. To be in total control. And that comes because of our relationship to God. We can only rule when we're ruled. The extent to which we allow God to master our lives is the extent to which we can master our environment. You know, the world is trying to control us and manipulate us. There's no question about that. It comes through our TV sets. It comes through advertising in magazines. You know, if you just, if you buy whatever it is they're producing this year that goes faster and looks better than whatever was produced last year, then you'll, you'll be able to attract the opposite sex or you'll be a real man or whatever. That's their line. And that's being sold to us day after day. You know, they start with these little bitty kids and they start telling them that it's something that you buy or wear or roll on or spray on or drive or something that will make you happy and successful and you'll have love and, and everything that you, that, you ever, that you ever desire. That's our environment trying to control us. Or we're told that you, if you have a master charge, you have clout or whatever. And so we take that master charge and we plunge ourselves into debt and we lose control over our finances. And we're the ones that get clouded. <laughs> or we're controlled by TV or by the magazines that we read. And we let our environment control us 
and that was never God's intention. He wants us to live as free men and women. That's what salvation means. We've entered into the freedom of the sons of God. We can act like Adam in our environment, not be desolated by what's happening around us politically or controlled by political ideas that are contrary to Scripture or controlled by any idea or thought or action on the part of someone around us that's contrary to Scripture. We're free. We're free from our habits and and the things in the past that have controlled us. We're free to be God's men and women. That's a comforting thing. You know, uh, when, when Moses wrote this, the people of that time had no concept of, of one God in control of, of all of nature. Their belief was that all of nature was, was God. The gods were everywhere. In all of these languages, the languages that were spoken in the ancient world at this time, there is no neuter gender. There's no it. We have an it in, in English, but they didn't. There was only he or she. The reason is because there was nothing was it. Everything had a personality. Everything lived. The rocks were gods. The, the clouds were Baal. The sky was Anu. Uh, the sun was Shepesh, the god. The moon was Yerik. The stars all had names. They were gods. The river was Judge River. The sea was the god Yom. And uh, death itself was a god named Mott that stalked around on the earth and took lives at, at will. They had no control over their environment. If your child was playing by the river and, and he fell in and was swept away, then it was, it was the god river that took your child away. They just lived in constant fear. They had no control over any part of their lives. The gods rule. And Moses wrote to tell them that's not so. That God rules. He rules in your environment. And he's given to man the right to rule, to not be mastered by our environment. And that's the freedom that we have today, the freedom that we've entered into because we're the sons of God. Let's stand together, shall we? Lord, there are so many things that we believe and do because we think we have to. We really do believe that, that we've been, been dom- that we're dominated that we have no freedom to act, to choose and to act. But we thank you that, that because the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. Teach us to live as free men, exercising our freedom in, in every area of life, loving people that, that we believe are impossible to love, caring for people around us that are not responsive to our, our concern and care, and living free from fear because of of threatening things in our environment. And we thank you that we can rule as kings. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.